0: Welcome to this month's special Classical Wisdom event. Uh, My name is Anya Leonard. I am the founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds, and I'm very happy to introduce our three distinguished panelists who will discuss the mythology of Thebes, its critical cultural and historical significance, as well as a very fascinating piece of cold history, the story of the sacred band of Thebes which happens to be the title of one of our speakers, James Rom's new book, which is being released today. Very exciting. Uh, so by way of introduction, uh, James Romm is the James H. Ottaway Junior Professor of Classics at Bard College. He specializes in ancient Greek and Roman culture and civilization. He's the author of several books, probably many of which you know, Dying Every Day, Seneca at the Court of Nero, Ghosts on the Throne, The Death of Alexander the Great, as well as the title of today's discussion sacred band 300 Theban lovers fighting to save Greek freedom. We also have Paul Anthony Cartledge, the Leventis professor of Greek culture at the University of Cambridge and fellow at Clare College. He has published extensively on Greek history over several decades, including the Cambridge Illustrated History of Ancient Greece, Alexander the Great, The Hunt for a New Past, as well as Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece. So we have a few crossovers of both Alexander the Great and Thebes. And finally, it's my pleasure to present Helena P. Foley, the professor of classical studies at Bernard College at Columbia University and member of the Institute of Research of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Columbia. She specializes in Greek literature, women and gender in antiquity, and the reception of classical drama. Uh, Helena is the author of many books, her most recent being Reimagining Greek Tragedy on the American Stag. So there we have a very thorough introduction for our excellent guests. Um, We're going to do a brief overview of mythology and history as well as the Sacred Band of Thebes before taking questions. So please feel free to submit them at any point uh, and we will be addressing them in about 30 minutes. So with that great introduction, I'd like to start with you, Helena can you please give us sort of a brief overview of the most important aspects of Theban mythology? And I know this is a big subject, um, but we kind of want to understand a little bit of who authored these legends and their impact on the city-state. Okay, great. Thank you, Anya. Um, Since there's a lot of names involved
1: in this because Theban mythology is very dense and has many generations (laughs) involved, I decided to actually Rate what I want to say down, just to be really clear and to be able to go slow enough that people will take all of this in. So I hope that that it's not too hard to follow. <clears throat> so the famous sacred band of 150 pairs of lovers and beloveds from Thebes, who died heroically at the Battle of Chaeronea in 330, 338 BC against Philip II of Macedon father of Alexander the Great is really hard to locate and interpret in terms of the mythological image of Thebes in the larger Greek world. Now, there was a sort of a disconnect between (laughs) Theban mythology and that extraordinary band of devoted lovers (laughs) who were certainly not fighting each other. Okay, so we know that Thebes had its own myths, myths from a very early date, starting from four early, almost entirely lost Theban epics. Too bad, we can't really get the Theban point of view (laughs) um, as it rapidly disappears (laughs) over time. So this epic tradition, from my point of view at least, seems to have isolated Thebes from much of the rest of the Greek world. From this early date. Thebes appears to have been famous for wars destructive, both to its famously walled city that were often prodo- provoked, <coughs> sorry, wars destructive to its famously walled cities that were often pre- provoked by disastrous internal conflicts in its royal family. The early Theban epics seem to have addressed above all Wars between the two sons of King Oedipus, Ateocles and Polynices, who were cursed by their father and failed to share their kingship in Thebes. The epic conflict of the seven warriors against Thebes, inaugurated by Polynices and his allies against his brother and his native city of Thebes drew in many other Greeks and eventually ended in the destruction of Thebes by the sons of the original seven warriors. Since we don't have these lost epics, we know little about how they addressed the full range of conflicts in the Theban royal family. But it may be significant that the most famous later Theban poet, Pindar, mentions the- Theban mythological names, but avoids discussing the related myths at all. He seems to have perhaps been uncomfortable about him, as he often was about other disastrous <laughs> myths.
0: <clears throat> um,
1: the more famous Panhellenic Homeric epics that you probably all heard from of, the Iliad and the Odyssey, focused instead on a war between Greeks and Trojans, a non-Greek enemy who abducted the famous Helen of Troy, i.e. not wars among Greeks and people in the same city. These two Homeric poems almost totally ignored Theban pathology. In the Odyssey, the city of Thebes was said to be built by the peaceable sons of Zeus, the god Zeus, and Antiope, Amphion and Zethus, who usually appear briefly at a later stage in Theban myth and seem to represent almost the only common moments in Theban mythology that we have preserved for us. <clears throat> Although the lost poems in the epic cycle related to the Trojan War, did include some myths focused on interfamilial inter- te- tensions in royal ruling families Homer's two famous poems by and large pointedly avoided those kinds of interfamilial yeah. disasters once again the focus in theban myth on wars between greeks and members of the royal family stood out as a different kind of epic Tradition, or so it seems. In addition, detailed versions of the myth about the ill fated Theban rulers come above all to us now from Athenian tragedy. The mythological founder of Thebes, Cadmus, was told by Apollo's oracle at Delphi to follow a cow until it got tired. He then killed a dragon which guarded this new founding spot and sowed some of the dragon's teeth in the ground. In most later versions of the story, the armed sewn men who sprang from the dragon's teeth immediately began fighting each other after Cadmus threw a stone among them, and of course killing each other. The survivors became the first male citizens of Thebes symbolically warriors who potentially could kill each other. Cadmus and his divine wife Harmonia only produced three daughters instead of sons, who then gave birth to three ill-fated sons. Most famously, and you may remember this if you read the Bacchae, Pentheus, whose name means grief, the son of the god Zeus, and Cadmus and Harmonia's daughter, Semele, rejected the worship of Dionysus, the god of wine, ecstasy, and later of theater in Thebes, and was punished by being torn apart by his mother and the women of Thebes. Cadmus, Harmonia, and their unfortunate daughters then left the city for exile. So mythologically then, Thebes had from the first problems emerging as a cultured and ordered city-state. At a later stage in the Theban dynasty, Oedipus's father, Laius, set in motion the misfortunes of his own Theban royal house. Welcomed by King in, Pelops in Elis in the Southern Peloponnesus after the death of his father, Labdicus, Laius abducted and raped his host Pelops' son Chrysippus. Cursed by Pelops after this primal Homer erotic act of abuse, the first one we know about in all Greek mythology, Laius received an oracle from Delphi, which made it clear in various versions that any son he bore would kill him and marry his mother who was called either Jocasta or Epicaste. Laias Laius fathered Oedipus when drunk and exposed the infant with pierced feet, where Oedipus's name means swollen foot. <laughs> the child Oedipus was rescued and survived to unknowingly kill his father and marry his mother. His two sons, Ateocles and Polynices. <clears throat> go back to my earlier point cursed by their father for various reasons failed to share their kingdom Polynices attacked Thebes with an army of seven warriors and the two brothers killed each other in battle Oedipus's daughter Antigone in the next generation in the same generation was then put to death by her uncle Creon for trying to bury her brother The Theban royal family thus became in Greek tragedy at Athens, the primal example of failed and perverted royal leadership. Athenians who were for much much of the fifth century BC at odds with Thebes, contrasted the dangerous earthborn warriors of Thebes with their own mythological first citizens who were also born from the earth, but devoted from the first to their fatherland and not fighting each other. (laughs) Greek tragedy avoided or resolved without disaster, intrafamilial tensions in the Attic early royal family. And it celebrated Athens' own generosity to the relatives of the seven against Thebes, whom Thebes had refused outrageously to bury. Given the international popularity of Greek tragedy from a very early day, and it's repeated focus on disastrous Theban myths. There's some other disastrous <laughs> myths in Greek tragedy, but this was certainly, I would say probably the most popular, disastrous. One. <clears throat> <laughs> um, <clears throat> Thebes apparently failed to even try or at least fail to fight back against this violent history of pederasty, incest, and intrafamilial murder, even though there were were apparently less incestuous versions of the Oedipus story, maybe Theban, in which, for example, his four children were fathered not by his mother, Jocasta, but by another wife. Maybe there were better versions in theology. It's even possible, according to some people, that Attic playwrights like Euripides turned the story of Laius' homoerotic romance with Chrysippus into a far darker event involving rape, suicide, and so forth, perhaps due to Athenian reservations about institutionalized pederasty. I'm counting on Paul to tell us about the aspect of things. So in sum, Thebes remains stuck with this unfortunate mythological reputation of being what Fromo Zeitlin has called an anti-Athens. And this reputation makes it really hard for us to understand now how the sacred band fits in to the whole complex historical even story. But I'm going to leave that difficult problem to our two historians to address.
0: Well, thank you very much, Helena. And, you know, I just think it's absolutely fascinating. We should always blame Euripides because didn't he do that to the Corinthians and Medea as well? Because I'm just, he's just a very dark guy who just makes everybody look that. Um, but I, a- I think so, <laughs> no, I think yes. That only, only
1: other people who are potentially in rivalry or conflict with that. <laughs> Very
0: athletes. crucially, and so I think you you've given us a wonderful, wonderful overview of Theban mythology and also how it's going to affect how people see Thebes. So I think this is now an excellent point to bring in Paul. Uh, if you could sort of give us an insight into the cultural and historical significance of Thebes, why was it so important, and why has it been so overlooked?
2: Ah, right. Well, I'll come back to that, um, uh, if you like, uh, later on. I was actually just going to talk, first of all, a bit about how it actually was and then um, how it's perceived. But I can obviously do both whenever you wish me to. But first, let me congratulate uh, dear Jamie on publishing this book today. And uh, may it have many, many readers and obviously many purchases. And Helena, that was a terrific uh, send-off. Thank you so much. And Anya, thank you for setting this whole thing up. It's a a real pleasure and a thrill to speak to you from Cambridge, in Cambridge in England. So it's a little bit later here than it is in uh, North America. So first point is a negative one. Please, please, whatever you do, do not confuse our Thebes greek thebes with egyptian Thebes. Mm. it's a complicated story and of course the word thebes is greek it's not egyptian but there was an egyptian thebes and it so happened to be the capital of new kingdom egypt and if you go to egypt today you go to luxor you're going to where ancient egyptian thebes was that's where tutankhamun is buried for example so sadly for some people when they hear the word thebes they think egypt no we're thinking about greek thebes the original uh, the thebes of among many many others helena's oedipus i'm going first to give you a little geographical chronological and political background then i'm going to give you too bad and too good about historical Thebes. So, first of all, geography. Ancient Greek Thebes lies or lay about 90 kilometres or about 55 miles northwest of Athens. And you'll see why I've put it that way shortly. We're in central Greece, we're in a region. Um, a, a county, if you like, an, an area called Boeotia, Veotia in modern Greek. And the first two uh, letters of that, Bo, suggest something to do with boos, which means ox in ancient Greek, possibly therefore quite a fertile land for the pasturing of animals, as well as, of course, for the growing of crops. Now, Thebes. Actually, it's a plural in ancient Greek. Thebai, which is reproduced in the English Thebes, with an S, and in German Theben, which is a plural, was always either the major or one of the two major cities, settlements of the region of Boeotia. Now, the Athenians and the Thebans for many years did not get on. Just give you one very small illustration. It's a phrase, a cant phrase, of course, invented by the Athenians. Boeotian pigs or Boeotian swine. The implication is we Athenians, we dwell in the mind and the spirit. We're not um, confined to the things of the flesh and especially of the stomach. We're not down there in the dirt snuffling for acorn. You Boeotians, and of course the Thebans were the principal Boeotians, are culturally uh, second-rate, inferior at any rate to us. And that's one of the many myths in the modern sense of myth, not the ancient sense. It's a fiction, it's a faction, which needs to be deconstructed. In fact, it needs to be exploded. Now, the trouble here, is that Athens and Thebes were basically too near each other. They shared a, a boundary. The ter- territory of the city-state of Athens, about 2,500 square kilometers, about a thousand square miles, abutted on the territory of Thebes and Boeotia. And there was um, a, there were a couple of settlements which were actually disputed as to whether or not they should go with Athens or go ethnically, as they should have done, with um, Thebes. And one of those is, in fact, the the town which gives the epithet to the god Dionysus, who was worshipped when those tragedies that Helena mentioned were put on the Athenian stage, Dionysus Eleutherius. Of the town of Eleutheri, originally Boeotian, grabbed by the Athenians. I mean, talk about cultural appropriation. Chronology. Well, in myth, timeless, Thebes was, as uh, Helena said, founded by a non Greek. Now, I may be wrong, but I think this is actually the only Greek city which the in local inhabitants were quite proud to say was founded by a non-Greek, Cadmos, who came from what the Greeks called Phoenicia, we, we'd call it Lebanon uh, today. Well, as such, Thebes features not at all prominently, as Helena has said, in our earliest Greek written text, namely Homer's Iliad. The real backdrop, I mean the archaeological, the historical backdrop to the story of the Iliad, is what we archaeologists and historians call late bronze age greece or mycenaean greece in round figures between 1500 and 1200 bc or bce late bronze age thebes was a very substantial place one of the half dozen most substantial in that period of greek Prehistory had a palace, and the palace was located on this most prominent Acropolis, which is known in historical times after Cadmos as the Cadmire, the place of Cadmos. It's got rich tombs. It had an administrative system that required an elaborate form of bookkeeping written in linear B, and so on and so forth. Now, that's prehistorical themes. What we're interested in is historical themes it becomes visible as a Greek city, what the Greeks called a polis, in what we call the 8th century, the 700s BC or BCE. It first achieved prominence in the 6th century BC, BCE. And of course, uh, inevitably almost, it achieves prominence in conflict with Athens from the late 6th century on. But the Thebes that interest us today is the Thebes, not of the sixth or earlier centuries, but of the fifth and fourth, more particularly the first half of the fourth century BC, BCE. Now, I said I'm going to give you two bad, two good. Both of them are each connected with with each other. The two bad first. In the early fifth century, Greeks living in the uh, what was Asia, within the Persian Empire, got caught up in a massive conflict with their cousins as it were on the mainland the persian empire based of course in iran decided in the 480s for various complicated reasons it was going to invade mainland greece in force by land and by sea huge invasion actually the biggest amphibious invasion of europe before d-day june the 6th 1944 what side should the greek cities of the mainland take the main enemy of persia was athens as it happened and secondly sparta so suppose you're thieves should you side with athens and sparta or should you as many many other greek cities did go over to the persians either positively i.e., great come on in guys we want you to conquer greece or well I'm not going to fight you. I think you're probably going to win, but I'm not going to oppose you either. Well, Thebes went with the positive embrace. It, what the Greeks called medized. went up, it. It was a traitor to a notion of free Greece. Bad. 140 years later, complicated situation. We've heard about Philip uh, of Macedon and his son Alexander, the Battle of Chironia, 338. That was a massive victory for the macedonians the punishment for thebes was to be occupied garrisoned three years later thebans not surprisingly fed up with being occupied garrisoned rebelled against alexander the great unfortunately they completely misjudged alexander who very quickly came down from the north and simply annihilated the city of thebes for 20 odd years, Thebes ceased to exist. However, that's too bad, now too good. In the 440s, going back to the aftermath of the Persian invasion, which of course was defeated, so that the Thebans found themselves on the defeated side, big mistake. In the 440s, Thebes re established itself as an independent city, having been occupied for the previous 10 years by Athens. Can you imagine? your nearest neighbour of power actually occupies you, not great. Anyway, in the mid-440s, having re-established their independence, they established also, this is very innovative, on the basis of a moderate version of oligarchy. So it's the rich who have the extra power, but nevertheless moderately, a new form of federal state now you americans i imagine are immediately pricking up here is i am a federalist too don't tell my uh, nationalist or even um, worse uh, compatriots Mm -hmm. i am a believer in federalism i think it's good anyway that constitution subsisted for 60 odd years and during it, Thebes was allied to Sparta. Sparta took on Athens and beat them. So Thebes now, having been the defeated side in the Persian Wars, is on the winning side against, Sparta, against um, uh, Athens. However, very soon the Spartans alienated all their not only their subjects but their allies and the thebans gradually gradually moved towards athens a move cemented when the spartans physically occupied the city of thebes and garrisoned it so they're back to where they were in the uh, athenian period liberated complicated story Thebes, I believe, re-establishes itself as a moderately democratic city. This is part of a trend of that time. But more than that, it becomes uh, again a federal state, federal capital on this moderately democratic basis. And this is the Thebes of Jamie's book. This is the Thebes which generates two extraordinary individuals, Epaminondas and Pelopidas. Military as well as political geniuses, and together with um the man we're going to hear from Jamie who invented the sacred band, they remake Thebes, not just um politically but militarily and in the course of what becomes we, we use the phrase the theban hegemony in other words it was for a period the most important single state in all main, mainland Greece. under epaminondas under pelopidas they liberate thousands of greeks who had been enslaved for hundreds of years by sparta they established two new cities, Megalopolis, the very first Megalopolis ever, and Messini, and altogether, in my opinion, have a broadly positive effect on the development of Greek history. But I've said enough. Jamie, over to you.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Paul. That was perfect, uh, excellent, giving us a context of the time period. and. Um, Yes, I think James, this is a perfect time to bring in the Sacred Band of Thebes.
3: <laughs> Indeed. Well, my my two colleagues have have given me great momentum, uh, a great uh, uh, lead up to the story, the main story of uh, my book. Um, so, as Paul has said, um, Thebes um, during the fourth century, after having been an oligarchy. Uh, for most of its history, uh, suddenly veered democratic and pro-Athenian. And the reasons for that are are hard to discern. But in large part, it was resentment of Sparta. And uh, Paul is, is a great expert on Sparta, has written beautifully about it. And there are many admirers of Sparta in modern America or the modern world generally. Um, In its own day, in the fourth century, under a king named Agesilaus, uh, Sparta was perceived as a great bully and uh, supporter of harsh right-wing regimes all around the Greek world, uh, boards of 10 that exerted enormous political pressure on the cities that they governed and imprisoned dissidents and suppressed free speech. uh, Thebes uh, set itself in opposition to Agesilaus and the program of Spartan power that had um, uh, alienated much of the Greek world, and therefore found itself on the same side as the Athenians. Uh, the Spartans occupied Thebes. They set up a garrison on the Cadmea. They uh, installed a puppet regime, a junta, one might call it. and um, miraculously, uh, the Thebans were able to overthrow that regime and take the city back from the Spartans in 379 BC. It was really a huge turning point, the first time that Spartan power had been significantly checked, uh, by, um, certainly by Thebes. And the Sacred Band were created in the wake of that event in 378. So the new government of Thebes, the democratic government, the pro-Athenian government, recognized that the Spartans were gonna come back for them with both barrels, uh, to be anachronistic, because of course there were no guns, but uh, they were gonna come back with everything they had and that the city had to find a way to defend its new government. And the sacred ban was created for that purpose, to deter the Spartan counterstroke, which came, of course, the very next year. Um, It relied on uh, a special aspect of Thebes. We know from other sources, from Plato and from Xenophon, that the Thebans had a uniquely uh, receptive culture to um, male homosexuality. They even had laws that uh, supported the gymnasia and um, uh, encouraged male unions. So there was kind of a, um, do I dare say gay positive uh, culture? That's also mildly anachronistic because we don't know for sure that these men were exclusively homosexual, but um, they formed unions that were said to be like marriage. Xenophon compares them to marriage by using the word uh, Suzu-Gente's men were yoked together um, <clears throat> for long periods of time. And so drawing on that culture, the Thebans created the sacred band, figuring that there was no way better way to motivate soldiers in battle than by stationing them next to their beloved, that they would want to protect their beloved, they would want to excel in their beloved's eyes, uh, they would be ashamed to do anything base like uh, dropping one's shield and running um, when one's lover was looking on. And uh, this proved to be the path to superpower status. The sacred band was instrumental in two major confrontations with Sparta over the next 10 years, both of which the Thebans won and the second of which, the Battle of Leuctra, which was 371 BC, was a um, devastating blow in which a Spartan king was killed on the battlefield and practically a third of the citizen soldiers of Sparta were killed and many of the rest of them uh, were perceived as uh, having run, having retreated in the face of danger, which was a great shame for Sparta. And the Spartans never recovered from that blow. Their image was forever damaged. Their reputation for invincibility was was destroyed. Um, so uh, I won't go on and tell the whole story. I wanna leave plenty of time for questions, but uh, the story really is that of a turning point in Greek history when Sparta ceases to be top dog, and uh, a a city that had always been second-rate, had always been perceived as a minor power, suddenly attained superpower status, thanks to the sacred band.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a really fascinating point in history and one that's hasn't really been discussed much. Um, and I think that might be a good place to start. And as James said, uh, you're welcome to write in questions uh, that you have about uh, mythology, about the historical context and also about the Sacred Band and I do ask if it's specific to one of our distinguished panelists please put in their name so we know who it is for but um, if we could start maybe James could you maybe mention why we don't know much about the Sacred Band or why it hasn't been written and and been pro- prominent in history?
3: It's a great question and uh It's also a question for Paul because he's entitled his book about Thebes, which is a marvelous book that, uh, is a perfect companion to my book because it gives you the much broader historical context. Um, uh, Paul has subtitled his book Thebes, the forgotten city, and it's forgotten, uh, in large part because of Xenophon, the historian who, and he wrote many other works, but, uh, in his um, Hellenica, he becomes a historian and chronicles the era in which Thebes attained superpower status. But he was a huge admirer of Sparta, had actually fought for the Spartans under King Agesilaus, and was a beneficiary of Sparta. He lived on an estate that they provided him. And he did his level best to obscure the glories of Thebes uh robbing them of the uh, the credit that they they ought to have gotten for their achievements of the 370s and and 360s and uh he doesn't even mention the founding of Messene which as Paul described was a huge event a, a turning point in that it allowed the uh, Helots the enslaved population of Sparta to escape and to have a safe refuge. Um, he glosses over it entirely. Uh, so Thebes has suffered for 2,500 years from the obscurity that Xenophon tried to uh, tried to consign it to.
0: Yeah, maybe um, Paul, if you don't mind expanding a little bit beyond Xenophon of, of why Thebes is uh gotten a bit lost. And I do actually have a question for you as well, is why did the Thebes welcome the Persians? So maybe the two can be correlated. Well, the
2: first point is, Jamie's completely right, so far as the glory days of Thebes are concerned. And on the other side, the Thebans themselves, did not generate, did not produce local historians who were national historians of the stature of Thucydides back in the 5th century and Herodotus before Thucydides. So there was nobody to give Thebes in the 4th century its due. Herodotus starts his preface by saying that I'm going to give those greeks and non-greeks who achieved great and wondrous deeds their due memory their memorial so there was no one like that and as you say jamie xenophon went out of his way to do the opposite but in the broader span of things there was um very very rarely any great um, national historian as where you can count them on the fingers of one hand so it's simply that it was easier to write the history of mainland Greece and Aegean Greece around either Athens or around Sparta and so typically that's what happened and as Jamie said Thebes was in the second division normally except in that extraordinary efflorescence in the second quarter of the fourth century BCE. So it's forgotten, um, I called it forgotten because actually the ancients themselves that is both the Thebans and non-Theban Greeks, chose not to make it central. And then um, there was a period, and I mentioned this already, of 20 years when it wasn't just forgotten, (laughs) but it didn't exist between 335 and 315. Now, what we call herbicide, uh, it's a horrible phrase, but um, it means the killing of cities was not uncommon. And I'm sorry to say Philip, for example, Alexander's father. Alexander kills Thebes. Philip kills Olympus up in North Greece. So Greeks were not always kind, uh, shall we say, to other Greeks. But the Thebans and other Boeotians seem to have had a particular, um, what shall we say, predilection for it. Pericles, the famous Athenian, he likens Boeotians to tall trees when there's a terrific storm and very tall trees crash together at the top they behead each other as it were Well, he says that's what the boeotians are like and i'll give you two examples the thebans destroyed plataea which is the boeotian city but one that chose to go with Athens, and it destroyed the what was really the second um city of um the entirety of boeotia in 364 and so Thebans don't have a good record overall they have exceptional positive things which is what i tried to to bring out in my brief presentation but you could also paint a very negative picture now you ask why did they meet why did they go over to the persians in 480 they were the southernmost major city or city of any size to go over to the persians so north of them all the way up through what's today uh, northern greece and bulgaria all the way to the hellespont that's the dardanelles those cities those greeks had by and large already gone over to the persians So the Thebans had a choice whether or not they were to go with the ones north of them or the resistance to the south. And they went with the ones to the north of them. An excuse that was given later. Now, whether this is actually factual or whether it's in fact just a, you know extenuation you see in 480 we didn't just have an oligarchy we had a very nasty narrow if you like reactionary oligarchy the sort of oligarchy that so hated the democracy in athens that it would side with any power that was the enemy of athens now of course sparta wasn't a democracy but it was a funny mixture of all sorts of um, regimes. But insofar as Thebes' main enemy was Athens, insofar as Persia's main enemy was Athens, my enemy is your enemy. There was a kind of natural affiliation and affinity. Is it an extenuation? Should the Thebans have been bolder? Should they have been patriots in a Hellenic sense? Well, in retrospect, yes.
0: But Um, it's, it's to me. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Could I ask a question to Jamie because
1: there's a wonderful part of his story that I'd like to hear him talk more about, which is the actual death of the sacred band seemingly as a group and their possible burial. Um, because that's such a romantic part of the story. If it's really true, I'm dying to hear what you have to say about it.
3: I think it's unquestionably true. Uh, uh, So Helena is referring to the mass grave at Carinaea at the spot where the sacred band were destroyed in battle by Alexander the Great. Underneath the Lion of Carinaea, which is a magnificent memorial sculpture, um, were found 254 skeletons. Now the band was 300. So it's not exact, but 254 Uh, laid out in rows as an infantry phalanx. This to me seems unquestionably to be the grave of the sacred band. I think most historians would agree. And um, my book contains some remarkable drawings that were made at the time of the excavation of the tomb in 1880 that were only recovered in recent years by the Greek archeological service. They were thought to be lost. And uh, through digital means, we've been able to reassemble the drawings and create an image of the whole mass grave. Um, The story of their destruction uh, told by Plutarch, and I think, uh, Paul, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, I think that the Macedonians recognized that the sacred band had uh, symbolic value as the defenders of greek freedom and to destroy them to a man was to quash any form of greek resistance to show the greeks that there would be no resistance to macedonian
2: domination perhaps this is the time if i may mention that of course homoeroticism or even full-blown homosexuality institutionalized was not unique to the Thebans or the Boeotians. The Macedonians had a version of it. The Spartans had an even more institutionalized version, I believe, because I think in order for you to become a Spartan, you had to have gone through one of these pairing relationships. And there is a, it's a story, of course, who knows, but Philip is said to have looked over the deaths, the actual corpses of the sacred band and said, "These." did not die without virtue. In other words, there was a a feeling in parts of Greece that maybe the way the Thebans did homoeroticism, uh, they were unique in having the sacred band, was not entirely admirable that there are better ways of conducting one's sexual life, Though it was controversial. We know this mainly from Athens. Most of our sources are Athenian. But Philip, I think there is, uh, as it were, conferring um, virtue upon agreeing that uh, they were truly men. And the Greek word for virtue, Um, is normally uh, uniquely sadly (laughs) applicable only to men and there are various versions of it masculinity can be expressed in various ways and one compound word andragathia means um, particular excellence as being a man and if you're a spartan or if you're a theban you believe that you ex as jamie's already said it and in the book You express this at its ultimate through um, homosexual, homoerotic uh, feelings and dying for your um, lover or your beloved. Well, that's uh, the ultimate, surely. Uh, Epaminondas mentioned him. He died with his then beloved. He never married, by the way. So he's like Plato and St. Paul, these extraordinary people, Jesus, (laughs) who have had massive impact on world culture and yet did not conform to the most normal, basic social institution, namely uh, heterosexual marriage. So um, it's complicated, but it happens to be, I think, a particularly strong and interesting instance of um, a phenomenon which too often is slighted or even, of course, despised. So, you know, just pointing out that it was complicated then, it's still complicated now.
0: Um, now, we have a few more questions that are coming in. Uh, so I would love to ask this is another sort of military um, based question that regarding the sacred band, um, beyond the homoerotic setup, was there something that was special about the sacred band that was allowed them to beat the Spartans, a different war strategy or fighting style, or was it the bond among the men that made it up? I think that would go to you, James.
3: Well, um, the um, we know that the band were housed at state expense on the Kedmea, uh the Acropolis of Thebes, and therefore presumably they were kept in uh, service, drill and training, year round. And that is a system that uh, adapts the Spartan system in which citizen men were constantly in military camp, in drill and training, even when they weren't called upon to fight. Sparta had been the only city to to use that system up until the time when the band was created. Um, Most cities simply used citizen militias. When needed, they didn't have a standing army. So in a sense, Thebes was adapting the strategy that Sparta had used of creating professional soldiers, creating a standing army, but only using a small portion of the citizenry, not the entire population.
0: Yeah. And I think there's times when that sacred band, because they were smaller, and more nimble, they could sort of maneuver in ways that perhaps a larger army might not be able to.
2: Yeah. Yes. It's absolutely crucial how they were used in a phalanx. In other words, we hear of them fighting on their own. There's a early instance. But the battle that Jamie mentions that, as it were, changed the world, the Battle of Lutra 371, it was crucial that whoever was the overall general knew what to do with them, where to position them, when to release them and all that. Well, the overall general was Epaminondas but the commander of the sacred band was his, as it were, sidekick, Butch Cassidy, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, he was um, called Pelopidas. And so absolutely crucial was when that band was released as the shock frontline body next to the regular army, which was already pretty hot. But also, Epaminondas put the best troops on the left, which is unusual because then they were opposite the Spartans, and they smashed the Spartans. Secondly, he deployed his army many, many ranks deep, 50, not the usual eight files deep, 50, six times as deep as a normal Greek army, and so won the battle utterly decisively.
0: Um, Moving back to mythology for a moment, this one goes to you, Helena, that uh, there's a question from uh, David. How does the myth of Hercules fit in with the story of Thebes? And I guess Hercules is such an important character and Theban, so it'd be good to tie him into this, into the background here. Well,
1: that's totally right. Um, Hercules does have a total, uh, very intimate relations with Thebes as well. But since poor Heracles was set off to do his labors and everything else and was not allowed to, be empowered to be a king in Thebes. He spent most of his life on his labors going all over the universe, so to speak, doing all sorts of extraordinary things and and not really establishing any long-term relationship to Thebes. In fact, he ends up killing his own children who potentially could have taken power in Thebes uh, in in a fit of madness. So what really happened to Heracles is, is yes, he's linked with Thebes, but really he became very, very quickly what I would call a Panhellenic hero in which every Greek city-state wanted to somehow take possession of him in some way or another um, and establish him as their hero as well. So it really his, is, links with Thebes are kind of sad because none of them really worked out very well for him. <laughs> oh, that's
2: but probably another good, reason.
1: good question because he, he is sort of a Theban hero, sort of.
0: <laughs> it's, it's definitely another um, example of how Thebes gets sort of overlooked that uh, Hercules is sort of an afterthought in the Theban mythology. Um, our next comment uh, is from Nick. Fascinating subject, thank you. What evidence is available that the sacred band may have had married women, i.e., for progeny or premature sake? What other evidence have you un- uncovered supporting homosexual unions in Thebes, whether legal, social, or otherwise?
3: Uh well, I guess I'll I'll start, but Paul probably has some words on this as well. Um so I mentioned the passage of Xenophon in which he says that men at Thebes were yoked together, and that's a word that's usually used of marriage, so that suggests some kind of permanent bond, possibly an exclusive bond, but we don't know uh, whether these unions were exclusive or not. Um, Plato also talks about Theban um, homosexuality being unique, or rather Thebes and Elis, a city of the Peloponnese, being unique among the Greeks in having um, uh, male unions that were formed uh, not with any elaborate courtship but just through the natural attraction of both partners. Um, He makes a joke about how Thebans can't speak well and because they don't have the right words for seduction, they made it their custom that, that the beloved, the the younger partner, would simply go along without having to be seduced. Uh, that's a bit of a hit at at Theban, uh, at the Boeotian swine notion that uh, Paul talked about, um, but it does again suggest that uh, the culture there was unique among the Greeks. Um, what am I leaving out, Paul?
2: Well, I could add one thing, which was the Theban sacred band by definition must have been pairs of adult men the spartans had pairing institution of an adult but with an adolescent so you could never have had a sacred band in sparta because the type of pairing relationship was asymmetrical in terms of generational difference. And uh, absolutely crucially, between being an adolescent, a boy, Pice in Greek, and being a young man, a he-bone in Spartan terms, or an ania you go over a threshold. You have a rite of passage and in Sparta, it's very elaborate because you have to get elected to a common dining group and then you become a citizen and so on and so on. But you couldn't, by definition, fight side by side with your beloved because that beloved was in a different generational group still being educated. And um, that, I think, is more normal. The Thebans were exceptional, and I believe, I infer, Jamie, you may disagree, that there were relatively large numbers of adult couples in Thebes, men-men. Compared with most other Greek cities, there's a famous case in Plato's dialogue called the Symposium, where one of the partners speaking is in a permanent, as it were, they're married to each other. They can't be legally, but they are in effect A a bond which I think was very unusual in Athens, which in this respect is like Sparta, but less unusual I think in Thebes.
0: You know that it it comes up to the next question. Actually, was was the band organized as younger, older, eromenos, erastes pairs? I've read that the younger partner was used as a shield bearer. So would that have been in the sacred band, or is that more of a Spartan issue?
3: I think I think Paul's quite right that uh, in order for both partners to be full-fledged infantry soldiers, they must both be of military age. It must be both 18 or, or older. And uh, so that suggests adult unions like the one uh, in the symposium between Pausanias and Agathon, a relatively new or, or unusual institution for the Greeks who more commonly would have Age unequal relationships between a, a pice, pre a, a non mature male and and an adult male.
0: Um, so moving on to sort of a more wider range of Greek history, is there any information about Thebes's relationship with Argos, which of course was Sparta's big rival on the Peloponnese?
2: Uh, You mean just ever um, in myth, and Helena can talk about this, of course, it's from Argos that the seven against the set off. but then Argos is a peculiar word because in Homer, it's all Greece. All Greeks are Argives, but in the historical period, Argos' main enemy was Sparta. So, if you're um, an ally of Sparta, then you are the enemy of Argos, and that's why Argos and Thebes would typically not get on, because uh, Thebes chose in the 5th century to go with Sparta. In the 4th century, as I said, the bond between Thebes and Sparta snaps, and so Argos, always anti-Spartan, now Thebes anti-Spartan together argos and thebes and you get a war it's called the corinthian war because a third member of the alliance is corinth and the fourth member is athens and what they have in common is all being anti-sparta so you've got a quadruple alliance in which the war which went on nearly 10 years in the 390s to the 380s does have argos Together with Thebes, another reason why Argos and Thebes before then would not have had much in common is that Argos went democratic much earlier than Thebes, so in other words, Argos follows the Athenian model way back in the 450s, four fifties four forties and remains such and that's why it tends to to be very, very hostile to Sparta because Sparta hated any other city that had a democracy, and it tried always to suppress democracy in any other city and to support oligarchy, because it happened to think that the masses uh, of other Greek cities at any rate were worthless. Sparta's itself a very odd combination of oligarchy, kingship and democracy. It's unique. So it's not any one thing or another.
0: It's amazing to think that nowadays we sort of have this, um, you know, theories that we should be spreading democracy and that in the ancient world, it's you've got to attack any democracy.
2: Well, one reason is, of course, in the ancient world, all forms of political constitution were direct. So suppose you're a rich, well-educated man, even in Athens, and your vote is worth no more than an illiterate peasant's vote. What do you think about that? Well. It's normal. Aristotle took it actually as the guiding principle of his um, way of analysing all politics, that the poor tend to be democratic because it flattens out differences of birth, wealth, education between individuals. We're all equal as citizens. Whereas he says the rich, they'll do everything they can, and some very nastily. To establish themselves as oligarchs in power, narrow regimes, even to the extent of, as Jamie was saying, killing off um, any Democrats that they don't particularly like. There's a famous example in Athens at the end of the fifth century BC.
0: It's amazing to think that uh, we haven't uh, changed that much. <laughs> well,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Right, so, um, I think this would be a good uh, question for you, Helena. Did Theban women have a special arrangement given many of the men were unavailable (laughs) from a gender (laughs) background? Um, Well,
1: from a mythological point of view, actually, a lot of the the, the Theban royal women that we know something about, actually, were powerful in many ways. I mean, if you if you think about Oedipus the King, which is probably the one play that people might have read, the Jocasta figure who's Oedipus' mother um, plays an extraordinary role in mediating between, in the quarrel between um, her son, King Oedipus, and her brother and his uncle Creon. And she clearly has a role of authority in the situation and then Oedipus has an enormous respect for her a royal ability to take, you know, take a role in the k- kingship in various ways. And she had a wonderful relationship with Oedipus, despite the fact that he was her son. So really that's that's the royal woman I think we know most about. Although if we go back to some of the other um, stories of kingship in Thebes, um, <clears throat> The mother of Amphion and Zethus, who built the city of Thebes, um, also played a very important role. <clears throat> um, I mean, she for a while people tried to kill her off and make sure that she didn't have any children, but she she kind of um, <clears throat> stuck to it and reunited with her sons and ultimately enabled them to take charge of Thebes. So. I would say most of the Theban women that we do know about in mythology are um, quite authoritative figures. I don't know about actual historical women in Thebes. Perhaps, Paul, James, Jamie knows something about that.
2: We're, we're uh, extremely-
3: Not, not Thebes per se, but um, uh, my book has one very appealing uh, woman of thespiae, which was another Boeotian city, um, Freni, who later went to um, Athens and became a famous Hetaira, a um, a hired girlfriend, I guess you could say. Uh, And um, she exhibited so much moxie and uh, accumulated enough wealth that after the city of Thebes was destroyed, as Paul described, the uh, herbicide of Thebes, she offered to rebuild the walls with her own money provided that it would say in an in a, uh, inscription that uh, Freni had had rebuilt the walls of Thebes. So uh, she's one of the remarkable um, celebrity women of this era from uh, Thespiae near Thebes.
2: And if I'm not mistaken, she was the partner of a very famous sculptor called Praxiteles. And it's thought she was the model for the first nude female who is not a prostitute but is actually a god Aphrodite depicted nude which was thought to be very shocking but she was said to be the model her name means toad you know the animal toad mm-hmm. but Thespia has another point of interest because there was a famous cult a worship of Eros who is Aphrodite's son and Eros means erotic attraction it means sex in the full physical desirable sense and uh, the thespians they fought in the persian wars with the resisting uh, greeks against the thebans and they died to a man at the battle of thermopylae the 700 who were sent they all died and if you go to thermopylae today you'll see a monument to the thespians and uh, they were really really heroic and extraordinary but then that's part of this internal the ocean struggle between different cities. Thespians were more inclined to democracy, more inclined to Athens, like Plataea, like Eleutheri. Yeah.
0: I think it should clarify that these are not drama students that we're talking about.
2: No, <laughs> that's named after an Athenian man called Thespis. Not nothing to do with thespii. I. Yeah thespians take their name from an Athenian who was the first, so it was said, to have himself act in correspondence, in dialogue with the chorus. So first of all, you have just chorus, and maybe one member of the chorus steps out, the leader, but this was the first actor, and he's also the writer, the dramatist, the dramaturg, he's the choreographer, the (laughs) composer, so he he earns his title.
0: Yeah, one-man show. Um, uh, well, this this kind of goes back to the sort of uh, overlooked, forgotten element of Thebes. Um, this is a comment from Kelly. It was truly frustrating riding the bus from Delphi to Athens, flying past Thebes without even a mention of it from our tour guide. That said, are the lack of archaeological features. No Parthenon, the main reason Thebes is an afterthought on the Greek tourist scene.
2: Yeah, well I was going to give you other reasons why Thebes is not was is forgotten and that's the main one archaeologically that uh, modern thebes which is don't are there any thebans listening Uh, not particularly distinguished uh, modern greek town uh, is built smack on top of ancient thebes ditto modern sparta and you get the same consequence that it's very hard to discover actually what the remains of original versions of thebes Are. And there is now, uh, as a sort of compensation, a really, really good museum. And so when you get a rescue dig, so you're building a house and you hit antique uh, remains and you declare them, which of course many builders don't, you then have an excavation. There are bits of the Acropolis which are not built on in modern times, which have been excavated. I mentioned the palace. But by and large, um, as that lady found going through on the bus, I'm not completely amazed that no one <laughs> mentioned they were going through the city of Cadmos, Oedipus, Antigone, uh, Epaminondas, Pelopidas, you know, whatever, whatever.
0: Yeah, from a practical standpoint, I always advise people when traveling around to Greece and Rome and Italy and such, to go off the beaten track and find some of the archaeological sites that aren't on the main tourist attractions because they can be wonderful experiences and and sometimes they can still be pretty put together archaeologically and never commented on simply because you know like you're in Albania or something like that and you get the whole site to yourself and it's fantastic you know so um (laughs) yes
2: (laughs) and
3: that's especially true of Messini the city built by the Thebans by Epaminondas in 370. It's way off the tourist trail, but it's a magnificent site, very well preserved. Absolutely. And yes, it would take you hours to see it all, it's, it's huge. And yet very few tour buses will stop there.
2: The yeah. the, region, the, the place nearest to what uh, is ancient, Messina is called Mavromati, which in modern Greek means black eye. And so it's the evil eye. So it's not an well-omened uh, part of Messenia.
0: <laughs> um, our next comment was there was what was thought to have been a goddess in a small statue who was shown nude from about 35,000 years ago. I think that's the <laughs> Venus um, statuette. Oh, Bilindor? Yeah. Bilindor, Germany, from Germany, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes,
3: I, I, and there are many Cycladic nude figures, but this was, uh, Paul's quite right that the Aphrodite of Knidos was the first full length or monumental female nude
2: that we know and of. Public, public monument, I mean, not just public a private. Monument. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, that's probably a very important distinguish distinction between the two. Um, for our next question, I think Xenophon uses uh, Suzygnomi, I'm not mispronouncing that, just a few times or so a quick search tells me. He uses Suzygnomi of Boeotians in an erotic context and speaks not of adult-adult, but adult-pious relations. Where does he use it with regards to the sacred band or of the soldiers?
3: He, sorry, he, he doesn't use it of the sacred band. He uses it of male couples at Thebes. And he does use it of, um, he does mention uh, Pice as one of the partners, but paul um tell me if I'm mistaken about this that Pice is not very age specific it it does not necessarily indicate a prepubescent male
2: it well, simply it's is the
3: younger partner
2: It's up to the age of well, I would say eighteen you can be as old as eighteen and you're still called a boy. What it means is you're not yet civically not just physically, but politically, a man.
3: And uh, Xenophon also says um, that, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, it's not Xenophon, but uh, uh, Aristotle uh, says that um, uh, men and youths, uh, uh, men and boys, pledged vows of fidelity to each other uh, in Thebes. At the tomb of Herak- Heracles, and at the tomb of Iolaus, who was Heracles, the Romanos, um, his beloved. And so the uh, these vows are again something we don't hear of elsewhere and suggest a kind of permanence that would transcend the maturation of the younger partner.
0: Um, we're, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time that you've all three given us uh, so graciously. So maybe this, I'll make this one the last question. Uh, We've heard about some of the correlations between forms of military and governance, but is there any similar correlations between market conditions? In other words, was there a more or less free trade associated with between Athens versus Thebes or Sparta?
2: Shall I pitch in a bit on that? I mean, two points there's external and internal trade. And when Thebes was ruled by various forms of oligarchy, they were extremely hostile to the very notion of exchange. That was trade, and we use it in an English sense you know, you're not in land, you're in trade, i.e., business. And you were even excluded from full citizenship if you had traded in the Agora, in the commercial centre, within the last 10 years. So Thebans were very hostile if they were upper class, elite, to any form of commercialization. On the other hand, goods were traded by individuals, whether Theban or Athenian. Between the two cities. So they crossed borders. There was commerce. And for example, Thebes at one point in the fourth century had a problem with uh, its grain supply because wretched Spartans kept invading, destroying the crops, and then preventing the Thebans from sowing for the next year. So Thebans have to go out on the open market. And so it's not um, beyond the bounds of possibility that they actually did, both as a city as well as individuals trade but thebes is not famous as a commercial center unlike athens do
0: you have any um, more comments to add on that either helena or, or james
3: uh no but the um i just would add that the episode paul refers to where the citizens uh, the thebans had to buy grain um they almost failed in that Purchase because the Spartans um, interdicted it and, and seized control of the ships. But the Spartan general who was in charge of that particular operation was in love with a, with a Pice himself. And uh, during one of his assignations with his beloved, the uh, Thebans broke out of their prison and, and took back the grain. So uh, Eros was a, a problematic issue. <laughs> uh, for Spartans as well as Thebans.
2: Nice story.
0: Well, I want to thank Helena, Paul, and James for taking your time and speaking with us today. Um, one of our last comments is actually asking for a timeline and maps, and so to that point, I would say please pick up well both Paul's book on Thebes as well as James's book coming out today, *The Sacred Band of Thebes*. Uh, I was very lucky enough to get a review copy and have enjoyed it thoroughly. It does a wonderful job of both telling you this really fascinating time period in history, as well as sort of the context, as well as the archaeological discovery. So there's a lot of interesting things for for you to read, no matter what your sort of interest in ancient history is, and uh, it does include timelines and maps, both of those books. So uh, for those who like the sort of analytical uh, read through of history, you will uh, enjoy it thoroughly. Um, and we will send out a recording of this as well with all relevant links and for those who enjoy taking part in classicalism events, uh, we have one next week, uh, June 15th with Donald Robertson on lessons from uh, Marcus Aurelius and the following week with uh, Professor Silenza from John Hopkins on how to have a renaissance uh, on Petrarch. So Thank you everyone for taking your time and uh, joining us today. And I hope you enjoyed learning a bit about Thebes.
2: Thank you all very much. Bye everybody, bye.